if you would turn there with me, John chapter 9, and let me read this to us this morning. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes open? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said to him, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciples, or you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. 
They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now you say, We see, your guilt remains. The word of the Lord. All right, guys, that's a lot. Um, But this chapter to me is like a case study in why you should read your Bible in context, why you should read your Bible in context. In other words, if you're reading scripture, it's vitally important that you not just drop down, plop down in the middle of some passage with absolutely no consideration of what has come before. Because if you were to do that here with chapter 9, it would simply seem like we're just coming upon yet another place where Jesus heals somebody. And there is this sense that Jesus kind of does this often. And so if we're just dropping in, here he is yet again healing somebody, and in this case, somebody who was born blind. But if that's all you take away from chapter 9, is that this is yet another moment where Jesus heals somebody you have completely missed the larger storyline. So let's take a moment and back up and consider what has led to this scene, because this is certainly no random healing. Let me take us back real quick to chapter 4. If you're there, turn with me to chapter 4. This is where we first saw Jesus heal somebody. At the end of chapter 4, he heals um, somebody in Galilee, not in Jerusalem, which is where we we find Jesus today. He's in Galilee. He's in the city of Cana, which is the place where he turned water into wine. And some sort of official comes to Jesus, maybe like a Roman official. We're not entirely sure. But he comes to Jesus and he begs Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus does so. This man is desperate. He will not take no for an answer. And Jesus heals his son without even seeing his son. He heals him from a great distance away. And then this father has to turn and like return to his home. And he finds out on the way he's met by messengers who tell him that his son has been healed. And John, the writer of this gospel, called this Jesus' second sign. It was the second miraculous thing that Jesus had done. The first was turning water into wine. This was the second miraculous thing that he had done that sort of identified him to everyone around him. It was an indicator of his true identity. But what's interesting about that healing was it was miraculous, but it didn't really make any significant waves with the people that we can see in John's gospel. That all changes, though, in chapter 5. In chapter 5, Jesus goes from Galilee to Jerusalem, and he heals an invalid at the pool of Bethesda. And in many ways, that healing is like the opposite or the mirror healing to the one that we see in today's passage in John 9. 
Uh, the man had been paralyzed for like 38 years, John tells us. And Jesus approached him and asked, do you want to be healed? And the guy never really answers Jesus. Instead, he, he answers by saying, yeah, I've been trying to get into this pool because the people believed the pool had miraculous healing powers. And there's no one who can pick me up and put me into the pool before everybody else rushes into the pool. That's how he answered Jesus. But then Jesus healed him and told him to take up his bed and walk. And he did. He got up and he rolled up his mat and took off. And along the way, he is confronted by the Pharisees. And he is um, guilty of the offense of working on the Sabbath by carrying his little yoga mat. Once he learns that it's Jesus that's healed him, this guy does not go back and worship Jesus. Instead, he goes and finds the Pharisees and rats him out because at first he didn't know who had done this to him. And so he goes and tells them, it's this guy, Jesus. I don't know anything about him, but he's the one that did this to me. Don't be mad at me. Be mad at him. He's the one who made me walk again. It's kind of an amazing way to respond to somebody who's made you walk after being an invalid for 38 years. But unlike that first Sabbath, or that first healing in chapter 4, this does make significant waves because Jesus did all of this on the Sabbath. From there, we're not sure how much time passes exactly, but Jesus goes back to Galilee from Jerusalem, which was a journey of several days. He goes back to Galilee. He spends some time in Galilee. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on water. Um, he tells the people that he is the bread of life, and if you want life, you need to eat his flesh and drink his blood, which makes everybody angry. Um, and then he turns around and he goes back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, this traditional annual Jewish pilgrim feast where everybody would come to Jerusalem for the celebration. And for the last several weeks now, that's where Jesus has been. He's been in Jerusalem starting in chapter 7. He's been in Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths. And the specter of this healing at the Pool of Bethesda has been hanging in the air um, while Jesus has been in Jerusalem. Here's what he said to the assembled crowd in chapter 7. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a, whole, a man's whole body well? But, but that's not all. Jesus not only pushes back against their anger, he goes on to essentially co-opt the Feast of Booths by claiming to be the source of the things that the feast celebrated. Remember, this was a feast where the Jewish people looked back to their time in the wilderness after coming out of Egypt and celebrated the way that God had provided for them. And they would build these little huts, these little booths, and they would live in them to remember God. Yeah, man, God gave us shelter. God gave us water. God gave us this pillar of fire to follow. And so all of these things were big themes. And as we saw, Jesus stood up and said, if you want water and you never want to thirst again, come to me. 
right? I, I am the source of, of true provision here. He said, I am the light of the world. If you don't want to walk in darkness anymore, come to me. So, so Jesus has completely disturbed this sacred annual feast. He makes these astounding claims and he challenges even the people who seemingly want to believe in him. And everyone's getting sort of whipped into a frenzy. Behind the scenes, the Jews are actively trying to arrest him. They even send a party of officials to like get him at one point. And for some inexplicable reason, they come back empty handed saying, no one's ever talked like this guy. Like we've never heard anybody like him before. Which is, is kind of astounding. But then at the end of chapter 8, Jesus makes this like penultimate claim of deity. Right? So he's, he's healed this man on the Sabbath. He's disrupted the feast. He's challenged people through his rhetoric. And then he makes this claim. He says, before Abraham was... I am. That's in chapter 8, verse 58. Before Abraham was, I am, because the people were claiming Abraham as their father. Jesus says, he's not your father. If he was really your master, your father, you would be doing the kinds of things that he did. And Jesus said, even before Abraham, I am. So as a result, he's doing two things that are like equally blasphemous to the people. One, he is connecting himself to God in Exodus 3, when God in the form of a burning bush told Moses, I am who I am. Jesus says, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And, and so that's first, he is essentially claiming to be God. And then secondly, as a result, he is claiming to be greater than Abraham and Moses, which is significant. So to recap, he's broken the law by not uh, keeping the Sabbath, at least the law of the Pharisees. He has completely disrupted the sacred Feast of Booths by claiming to be the source of this provision that they're celebrating. And now he has claimed to be God and greater than the patriarchs of Israel. So how do the people respond to all of this? Well, at the very end of chapter 8, they pick up stones to stone him, to kill him for blasphemy. Verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So... All of that happens. All of that transpires. Jerusalem is seemingly in an uproar over these things that Jesus has done. He has to literally somehow slip away. How does he do it? We don't really know. He somehow slips away from this crowd that is seeking to kill him. What is the very next thing he does? He heals a man on the Sabbath. <laughs> like the, the very thing that instigated all of this. In a moment seemingly where like emotions are at their peak, where anger is running high, what is the next thing he does? The very thing that angered people to begin with. So suddenly we're not dropping in on just some random healing, are we? Like we're dropping in on an incredibly bold, brash, and subversive move on the part of Jesus and it falls in line with everything he said about himself in the preceding chapters. Namely, 
that he is perfectly obedient to the Father and that he does whatever the Father tells him to do. And he does this regardless if people like it or if people agree with it or if it could result in people trying to kill him. Those things seem to be inconsequential to Jesus compared to the importance the gravity of being obedient to the Father. And the call that Jesus has put out to his hearers is that they would follow him as he follows the Father. So as we get into chapter 9, Jesus is going along with his disciples. They see this blind man, and the disciples ask, Who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Now, I actually talked about this question some a few weeks back when we looked at that other healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. Um, so I'm not going to get into this deeply today because uh, Jesus told that man, uh, go sin no more so that nothing worse happens to you. And so we kind of connected these two accounts back then. Um, but, but I will say this. And I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that message if you missed it. We'll say this today. Jesus is not denying that there is a connection between sin and suffering. Right? That those two things are deeply intertwined. There is absolutely a connection between sin and suffering. What he is saying, though, or what he is denying, I guess we could say, is that all suffering is connected to particular sins or specific sins. For example, what we can't say is, this man's blind because 40 years ago his father lied about something, or because his father broke the Sabbath decades prior. This, this man was, as a result, born blind, which those kinds of things were thought were popular in the mainstream culture at this point in time, that there was this sort of generation, not just generational sin, meaning sin passed down from generation to generation, but like generational consequences for sin, that because an ancestor of yours had done something, some kind of terrible suffering could be taking place in your life. Jesus doesn't deny that there's a connection between sin and suffering. What he's saying is we can't look at one particular sin and say that's the reason why this is happening in this person's life. But rather, suffering is the general result of sin and brokenness in our world. Now, you may find that there are negative things in your life that are clearly the result of things that you've done or decisions that you've made or maybe things your parents did, right? That's not to say that there aren't consequences that we can see in our life and we can trace them back to decisions that may have been sinful or actions that may have been sinful. That certainly happens. There are real consequences for the decisions we make. Um, if you or your spouse has an affair, right? That has real consequences, and there's real suffering that results. This is a situation, though, where this man was born blind. Did you notice how that got repeated over and over again? That he was born blind. That he, there wasn't a point where he could see, and then suddenly didn't see anymore, but that this has always been the case 
for him. He was made this way. So we can't connect all suffering to particular sins, but also, listen, God may have, in fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and say God does have intentions for your suffering, which is certainly the case here. God has predestined that Jesus would heal this specific blind man at this specific time. And what he says is that in doing so, the works of God might be seen in this man. And that's because miraculous healing is a glimpse into the realm of God. It is a glimpse into the kingdom of God. Pastor Tim Keller says, we modern people, we we think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order. But Jesus meant them to be a restoration of the natural order. They're not some weird anomaly that breaks in to the natural order, but rather the order as we know it is unnatural. It is not what God originally intended it to be. And so when something miraculous happens, as we see today, it's actually God giving us a glimpse of what the real natural order should be. Keller goes on, he says, the Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease or hunger and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but listen to this, they're not just proofs that he has power, but also also wonderful foretastes of what he is going to do with that power. Jesus's miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. And no matter who you are or what your suffering is, Jesus Christ has died and risen so that the works of God might be displayed in you. So that foretastes of the kingdom might be seen in you. And and even if that doesn't mean full alleviation of your suffering in the present moment or in this life at all, those who are in Christ believe that Jesus has died to bring about a new world where, as Tolkien said, everything sad is going to come untrue. Where the natural order will be restored. In The Great Divorce, which is not a book about divorce, C.S. Lewis said, some mortals, some humans, say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. His point is that once we truly, fully see the glory of the culmination of the work of Christ in eternity, the power of what he has accomplished will turn even our current suffering into joy as we look back on it. Because we will see what Christ has done and what has come to fruition. Jesus knows what he is working towards. He is not in the dark. He knows that even his own suffering has been predestined for God's glory. 
And I, I keep using that word intentionally, right? These, these are things that God has predetermined to do. Like Jesus is not somebody who just shows up on the scene and happens to get on the wrong side of the Pharisees and find himself murdered. No, no, no. This is the point. This is the intention. And because of that, here's my primary point today, guys. The, the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ fully realized, should remove the suffering of fear from our lives. The truth of the gospel fully realized should remove the suffering of fear from our lives. Maybe not instantaneously, but progressively. You're probably not inclined to think of it in this way, but fear is a sin. I say you're probably not inclined to think of it in that way because fear is most often not volitional. Right? You don't necessarily decide to fear. It's largely involuntary. And sometimes it's warranted and good, right? You, there are situations where it's good for me to be fearful. I have a reason to be afraid, and it can be a positive and helpful thing to me. And then there are other cases where it is completely irrational and maddening. So why is it a sin? It, well, it's a sin because it is the result of a lack of trust and rest in God. St. Ignatius of Loyola said that sin, listen to this, sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. Sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. And you may go, yeah, but I, I, I believe in Christ and I'm not experiencing happiness right now. That may be true in this broken, fallen world. But the beauty of the gospel, the promise of the gospel is that new world is coming where all of those things will be fully realized. Did you know that the words fear not or do not be afraid occur at least 350 times in the English Bible? At least. Some people, uh, depending on the translation, say uh, they're in there 365 times. So basically, each day out of the year, you can look up a passage that reminds you to fear not. The problem isn't that God hasn't told us what to do. The problem is that we don't believe him. The problem is that we don't trust him unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my best. Only my deepest happiness. Which is why Jesus' mission doesn't simply seem to be about conversion. It doesn't simply seem to be about getting people who once trusted in themselves or other things to, to believe in him. But, but even more than that, transformation. You must be born again. You, there must be this like rebirth, not just a mental shift, but, but a transformative thing. He doesn't want us to simply believe in him. He wants us to experience the life that he has, this life of union to the Father, where, where we're so dovetailed together that I only do what I see him doing, that I only do what he wants of me. It's this life of full abandonment and obedience to the will of God. Let me ask you this. Who's not afraid 
in today's text. Like as you read through that story, who is not fearful? Well, primarily Jesus, right? Shocker. People just tried to stone him for all the things we talked about earlier, claiming to be God, breaking the Sabbath, disrupting the feast. But does he run away from Jerusalem? No. No, he goes and does the very thing that got him in hot water in the first place. He's completely unafraid. And he says, verses 4 and 5, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Do you notice the urgency in those words? The negative opinions or the anger of man will not stop him doing what the Father has called him to do. We must work the works of him who sent me. It's imperative. Notice he also says we. This means him and his true followers. It's not just his work. It is also the work of the church. It's work that he's invited true believers into. This is the point of verse 5. Verse 5, he says, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Um, That doesn't mean that Jesus is no longer, in a sense, the light of the world. But it does mean that it is also true that his followers are also the light of the world. That's Matthew 5, 14 through 16, by the way. A city on a hill can't be hidden. We are that city on a hill. But if we are cowering in fear of what other people will think or fear of rejection or fear of social awkwardness, we are not only not following the example of Christ, we are being disobedient to him. Who else is fearless in this story? Certainly not the Pharisees, right? I mean, I think all of their actions are the result of fear, right? They're they're motivated motivated by fear of the unknown, uh, fear of a loss of power. And it's also certainly not the blind man's parents who get pulled in front of the Pharisees, right? I mean, John even tells us that they were afraid of the Jews. They were afraid of being put out of the synagogue, of their lives effectively being ruined, of being socially ostracized. No, the only other person in this account that I see who is just truly fearless is the blind man himself. His healing produces in him this radiant, glowing fearlessness. Why? Because he's experienced a foretaste of the kingdom of heaven. The realm where everything is as God would have it be, and sin has no dominion. When I've caught a glimpse of what is to come, even if I don't see it fully, and when I've, when I've just tasted a little bit of what is to come, suddenly the fear and the worries and the anxieties of this age dissipate. This guy could literally care less about being kicked out of the synagogue because, you know, as a blind man, uh, as a sinner in the eyes of the Pharisees, Right? Because he's a sinner, because he has a, an illness or an infirmity. He probably wasn't even in the synagogue, really, to begin with. Let me ask you this. What would it be like for you to truly live as someone who has nothing to lose because Christ has won the victory over sin and death? Where would you start?
Let me end with this last beautiful paragraph. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, You have seen him. (laughs) You know, do you think anybody had ever said something like that to him before? You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now you say we see your guilt remains. Church, what does it look like for us to truly lean into trust in the Lord in our daily lives? What does it look like for us to very intentionally seek to push past fear? A couple things that come to mind for me that I would just make as suggestions, and I'm really primarily preaching to myself here. One, that we would trust Jesus with our time. Um, That my time with him in the word, in prayer, in meditation, on scripture, that that time with him would be more important to me than my phone or Netflix or my workaholism or anything else that I would truly embrace the words of the psalmist who said better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere and I would be I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than be in the tents of wickedness but that I would truly look at him as being a better use of my time. Does that make sense? Than anything else I could possibly give my time to. It's some of what we talked about last week. If I'm not willing to immerse myself in the things of Christ, then how in the world am I going to be his disciple? And then secondly that I would trust Jesus with my future. (laughs) Because let's be honest, who has any real clue what's going to happen tomorrow? None of us. James talks about this in his epistle. I think it's in James 4 or 5. But he, he says something to the effect of, you know, you folks say, hey, tomorrow we're going to go over to this city and we're going to set up shop there and we're going to make money and we're going to have a great life over there and we're going to do this and this and this and this and this. And James says, you don't have a clue what's going to happen tomorrow. 
at the very least, say, if the Lord wills. Because at the end of the day, he is the only one in this relationship who is sovereign, who actually controls everything. Jesus says, why would you worry about tomorrow? Let tomorrow worry about itself. And yet, how much of our time is devoted to worrying about tomorrow? Planning, scheming, dreaming, thinking about what could be. If you're going through a bad season, you're worried that it's never going to change, it's never going to become a good season in the future. If you're in a good season, you're worried it's going to turn into a bad season in the future. No matter where you are right now, you're worried, am I going to actually be successful down the road? Am I actually going to become somebody? Do I actually matter? Like, is that going to somehow come to fruition? How much of our time and effort is devoted to that? Why? Because we're afraid. Like, we're afraid of tomorrow. Because what we really know deep down in our gut is, I actually have no control over it. I don't really know what's going to happen. And so one of the primary ways that we play God is by spending a great deal of time and effort and worry and anxiety in thinking about tomorrow as if I have some kind of control over it. I like to live in this delusion that I have control over it. And that everything that occurs is a result of my hard work or my intelligence or my cleverness or whatever. But I am not God. I know I'm not talking about any of you guys in that. And I'm never sarcastic either. What would it look like for us to really intentionally seek to lean into trust in the Lord and to literally come before him with open hands? And recognize that there is nothing that I have that he has not ultimately given to me. And that whatever happens tomorrow will not simply be the result of me. If tomorrow even happens to begin with. Do you see? <laughs> I love this. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. I have come to open the eyes of the blind. He's not just talking there about the physically blind. He's talking about the spiritually blind. And that for those who think they see, that they would become blind. Let me leave you with this. 1 John chapter 3. This begins with the word see. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Do you see? See what he has done for you through Christ, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. They don't see. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears... We shall be like him. Right? All sad things will come untrue. The abnormal will become gone. It will be done with. And the true normal order 
will be restored in Christ. Our sin will be erased. We will be like him because we shall see him as he is. May God bless the hearing and reading of his word. Let us pray. Father, we give you praise and honor and glory. We thank you for the goodness of Christ. We thank you for sending Jesus so that our eyes might be opened, so that the eyes of our hearts might be opened, so that we might see what you have truly done for us. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for the ways in which our fear diverts us down roads following other gods, following the things of this world, and that you would call us back to see you as the true source of our provision. That you, Father, have adopted us into your family as beloved children. And that we are not the same anymore. And Lord, we pray that through the process of sanctification, you would perpetually and continually bring us out of our fear and anxiety and worry about tomorrow and that we would increasingly entrust those things to you, that we would increasingly trust that you truly have our best interest in mind. And that you are more than trustworthy and more than faithful and more than good. May we see that with the eyes of our heart. May we be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Seeking to walk with you and to do only what we see you do. of the example of Christ that you